to pray with me. Dear Father, thank you that uh, you sent Jesus Christ to die in our place, that uh, we can't boast in knowledge or great speech, but in you. We have no power within ourselves, but only the power that comes through the Holy Spirit. Pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, Lord, that with the preaching and the reading of the word, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would grow our affections for you, that we could love one another better, that we could love people that don't know you, Lord. I pray that if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that you would open their their eyes of their heart, Lord, that uh, they could see you and savor you. And I pray these things in your name, Lord. And now if uh, y'all would just take a moment to pray for your own hearts, that God would uh, reveal himself to you personally. you would take a moment to pray for those around you, that uh, people would see the Lord in fresh ways. Now, if you would just take a moment to pray for the preacher, like I would use him, that the Spirit would speak through him. I'm going to be reading today from Ephesians 4, 25 through 5-2. It is on page 978 of this book. It should be in front of you if you do not have a Bible. Ephesians 4, 25 through 5-2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, 
It is a joy, again, to be with you and open God's Word with you. I love this book of Ephesians. We've been walking through it, and I hope it has been uh, just a joy to your heart. You know that this book is divided into these two halves, the first half largely what God has done, and the second half largely who we are to be as a result of what God has done. So we find ourselves in the second half, and I'm here to to tell you there's good news and there's bad news about this reality. The good news about what God's done in Ephesians, what He's calling us to do, is that He didn't save you to leave you as you are. So who you are today is not who you're going to be in a year. How your marriage is or your singleness is or your, your emotional life, it's not where you're going to be. That's the good news. The bad news is God did not save you to leave you as you are, which means He's going to root around in your business. He's going to get all into the uncomfortable spots and the nooks and crannies. And if you walk with God and say, God, do your work in me, He will do it. And it will hurt. It will be hard at times. Sometimes our Father calls us to go through painful stuff. I was talking with my brother about some challenges God's called him to walk through. It's hard. We've walked through some hard stuff. God uses trials to do this work in us, but He does it as a father for His, did you hear that in those last two verses? Beloved children. That's really the, 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 the idea here in Ephesians. He's speaking to beloved children. And for His beloved children, He does something remarkable. He seals them with His Holy Spirit. There's there's a lot in one through three, but I just want to draw out one thing from from the first big, great paragraph, three through 14 in the first first, uh, chapter that we find in our text, and that is the idea that God seals us with His Spirit. And so what we're talking about here is what what does life look like for those who have been sealed by the Spirit, all right? So we're we're going to talk about the Spirit-sealed life. First, turn with me back to chapter 1, to that big long paragraph that, that is glorious and wonderful, and you saw all kind of good things when you were in chapter 1, 3 through 14. Uh, God's blessed us, the, the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He, he chose us before the foundation of the world, like before Genesis 1-1, He chose you to be His. In love, He predestined you, if you are in Christ, for adoption through Christ. All of these things accomplished in Christ, right? Union with Christ is what 3 through 14 is, is just repeating over and over and over. Every good thing we have is because we are in Christ. How does God look at any sinner and see anything good except they are in Christ? And that's what that's all about. It's in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, right? And all of it is for His glory, right? We see that in chapter 1, verse 6. All of this is to the praise of His glorious grace. Chapter 1, verse 12, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Chapter 1, verse 14, it's all to the praise of His glory. The Father working with the Son, the Spirit working all for their glory, our joy, our love, good news. Amen? Now, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the last part of that paragraph is something that the Spirit does. Look at it in chapter 1, 
verse 13. In Christ, you also, speaking to the Gentiles who have become believers in this great city, Ephesus, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, God did something. You believed in Christ. You heard the news that you were a sinner. You had broken God's law. You were living in rebellion to God. And God made a way for you to be forgiven, and it was only through the death of his son. When you believed in that, God did something to you. What did he do? This is something we don't talk about enough in the church. We've got to understand this. Verse 13, you believed in him and you were, what's the next word? Sealed. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. All right? We've got to think, what, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? All right, so just, just hold that and we'll come back. To sealed. We're, we're, we're getting there in a moment. Now, turn to Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. All of 1 through 3 is, is the work that God has done for us. We were dead. He made us alive. Glorious good. We were different people. God's bringing us together, reconciling. And then in 4 verse 1, he says, in view of all of this good thing that God's doing, I'm calling you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. All that God has done the good news and the bad news, God didn't mean to leave you as you are. So he's calling us to live lives that now are changed because of the gospel. And that's what we're about to see. We're about to see how God changes our lives. He moves us away from hypocrisy. Oh, I love Jesus. And oh, I'm doing all this dirt over here. He, he wants to change us, right? He wants to change us. And he's going to get really, really nitty gritty. So all that we're going to talk about is walking in a manner worthy of the calling. Doesn't mean earning at all, right? My 10-year-old daughter, she comes to me. She says, um, Daddy, I, I drew this picture for you. Will you love me now? What do I say to her? Well, you all know what I say, right? Babe, I love you. Thank you for the picture. I loved you before the picture. The picture is not why I love you. I love you because I love you. I love you because you're my daughter. I love you because you're mine. Daddy, Daddy, I, I did the dishes for you. Will you love me now? Whoa, 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 whoa. Stop everything. We need a different conversation. We need to discuss things. You don't have to do any dishes or, or color any pictures. I love you. You're my daughter. You're accepted. You're mine. Now, when that's really clear, she's going to do the dishes. And I'm happy when she colors pictures for me. But what we got to know from Ephesians here is, is we're not earning, right? None of this is earning. None of this is meriting. None of this is making God love us more. We were rebels. We were dead. God made us alive. And if we, when we trust in Christ, he makes us alive. He seals us. But he, he says, you know, for my kids, I want them to walk in a certain way. God wants us to become more like the target. What's the target? Become more like Christ, more like his son. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. He doesn't want us to be weighed down with our old baggage, our old anger, our old lying, and so he wants to change us. One more note, and then, then we'll dig in here, and that is this. He's not speaking mainly to individuals here in Ephesians. He's speaking to a church. So Ephesians is this large city 
on the west coast of Asia, right, looking out over the sea. Picture San Francisco. Paul has come to the city. He's preached against, like, huge city idols. Uh, uh, people have believed, and now you got these broken people, jacked up people that are gathering together in, like, a church maybe this size, and he's speaking to them. And, and, and listen for the language of how he speaks to them in chapter 4. Verse 1, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you all to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you all have been called, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, for there is one body and one Spirit. Go down to verse 12. Pastors, teachers, they were given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith, verse 13, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. You hear this language? We, us, team, body. So he's speaking not just to individuals. He's speaking to a body. If, if you become part of this church, if you are part of this church, if you're a covenant member here, you're part of a body united by the Spirit working together. Verse 15 Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined, held together, with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So speaking to a body, which is exciting. God works through a body to help us grow, help us to become more like Christ. It's not speaking primarily to individuals, but oh, if we are Americans, we know we are hardwired to be individuals, right? Get out of my life. My life's not your business. And what God's saying is, no, enter into a covenant relationship like marriage where your life and my life, we're, we're in one another's lives. My life is your business. Your life is my business. Not in a nosy neighbor way, not in any kind of gossip way but in a new family. If you've never been part of a family, God invites you in to become part of a new family where you do life together. All right. Now to our text, starting in verse 25. With each of these, there's, there's several. We're just going to walk through these. With each of these, God wants to describe for us what gospel transformation looks like, and then with each of them, we are pointed to Christ. So let's begin in verse 25 with these just different marks of spirit-sealed life, spirit-transformed life. Verse 25 is all about truth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another, okay? What did you hear in that verse? Did you hear any language of we there? What's the ground for why we leave behind our life of lying and deceit over here and we become these new people who walk in the truth? What's the, what's the basis that he gives us? We're members of one another. We're members of one another. And if you are in Christ, you are transformed from an old man, and the old man lies. The old man deceives. 
The old man tells half-truths. Right? If you are not in Christ, you're going to just continue to deceive and to lie. And God says, as a new person, part of a new body, I'm calling you to leave behind lying and deceit, half-truths even, and come over here and walk in the truth. That's how the gospel changes us. We leave behind deceit. We walk in truth. Now, we think of that and we say, how is that making us like Christ? Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is truth, right? And so we are born in our iniquity, in our sin, in our deceit, and and we're becoming like Christ. He is the truth, and he's also the Savior for every time I lie. Even yesterday I was convicted about this. I've been thinking about this verse. It's been in my mind for, for weeks, but I was late. I planned poorly. I was trying to get home, and I was, I was running behind. How long till you get here? And I said, eight minutes. And I knew it was going to be probably like 12 minutes. Really small thing. Not a big deal, right? It's like, why did I say that? Because I want to be a little bit less in trouble, right, with my wife when I talk to her. So if I say eight and I'm there 12, a little. But, man, we have much bigger things that we lie about, Right? And so then we, with all this, God's at work transforming us, but we still blow it. We still fail. And we look to Christ. We say, okay, my righteousness is in Christ, not in me. But that doesn't mean he leaves us alone. He's changing us. He's changing us. And the first thing he wants to do is put away falsehood and speak truth because we're members of one another. Truth. That's one. Second one, anger. Anger. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Oh my. Anybody here struggle with anger? Don't have to raise your hand. Answer, yeah, right? And if you don't think you struggle with anger, then try adding a little bit of stress into the equation. If you're single, get married. If you're married, have no kids. Have five kids really quick. And then you'll just go, oh my. All kind of anger coming out, all right? But sometimes you're single and you just have a roommate and things are hard or just extended family, stuff is hard. We all know when we don't get what we want when we want it, anger comes out, right? And so what is he saying to us here? He's saying, be angry. Anger springs up, but do not sin. The old man, he's given to anger in so many different ways but we got to leave this behind. He's going to come back to this at the end of the chapter when he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away along with all malice. He's got a long list. He said, Christian, when you're marked by all these things, that, that, that's not displaying Christ. That's not displaying Christ. And so as we get together in community, we got we got to confess sin because he's saying, no, we got to put off sin. We got to, and one of the big sins in, that destroys marriages, it's destroying marriages even here, destroying relationships is, is anger. When we don't get what we want when we want it. And so he's inviting us into this, this, this reality of gospel transformation where we're putting anger to death. What does this look like? As a dad, it looks like confessing sin to my kids. It means saying, bud, you really annoyed me like really annoyed me. And guess what? My response was way 
out of proportion. Like I got super mad and that was not okay. And I just want to ask you to forgive me. That's what gospel life looks like, is doing that. Looks like that as a pastor, looks like that as a member of just doing that. Because he's calling us to this, this process. He's not calling us to perfection, right? We're not perfect. We're in process. So we push time out and we say, are you in Christ? Do you recognize yourself to be a sinner? Do you recognize yourself to be one who regularly sins? And if so, are you looking to Christ? Because he is our only hope. He is the only sinless Savior. And so we think about anger in Christ. And, and, and very quickly, my rationalization wants to say, well, well, Jesus got angry. Be angry and do not sin. What did Jesus get angry about? Get angry about the Father's glory being profaned, Father's house being profaned. What did Jesus not get angry about? People whipping him and hurling insults at him and beating him and crucifying him. He wasn't angry about his own deal. Oh, it hurts my heart when I see relationships where people are so angry about, she did this to me, she did this to me, she said this to me. Uh, Okay, yeah. But those are not the reasons why we give ourselves to anger. That's not the way of Jesus. So we look to Jesus and we say, he is meek, mainly. His anger is against injustice. His anger is against the Father's glory being robbed. His anger is not about personal protection. So Jesus is calling us away from this. And when we blow it, we confess, we look to Jesus. He's dealing with our truth. He's dealing with anger. He's also dealing in 28 with our money and our giving. I love verse 28. I love it. I I think it's just such a great picture of how the gospel transforms us. All right? So over here on this side, we've got the thief. This is us apart from Christ. This is us just in in our own sin nature. I am more important than you. What you have, I should have. Therefore, I'm going to take it from you. Right? That's the mindset of theft. I'm going to take what you have and make it mine, right? And that happens all over the world in all kinds of different ways, corruption and bribery and embezzlement and and just taking office supplies at work, whatever it is, cheating on our time card, cheating on our taxes, all, all kinds of ways we can steal. And what Jesus does is he moves us, not just to the neutral place where we stop stealing, but now we're over here and we're working hard according to this verse. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with our hands. God's given us each different talents, gifts, and abilities. Each of us can work in different ways, do different things. For one person, they can be a nurse. I could never be a nurse. Right? I, I hear stories from my mother being a nurse. I go, no. She had great grace to do that. She does that. So she works with her hands. I work. We all do, we all do our work. right? And then we work, and we earn money, and with that money, then we have something to give. And look at what the gospel does. Instead of stealing and taking, now we're working and we have something to give. And and it's just this powerful transformation. When it happens in a body, thieves become those who now work and now have something to give. And in a body, all that's working together and all kind of generosity is flowing and families are blessed and, and, and people in hard situations are blessed with generous giving coming from the sweat of our collective brow 
and, and love is growing up and joy is multiplying and it's sweet. It's just this picture of Jesus at work in our lives. W- do honest work with his own hands that, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need so that in this body there need not be any unmet need, any truly unmet need because together we're working having something to share. We say, okay, how is this like Christ? How does this remind us of who Christ is? And then we're reminded Jesus was rich without any need in heaven, left heaven and became poor that through his poverty he might make the many rich, right? He is the ultimate display of this very truth. Every one of these with like, what does that look like not to lie? What does it look like to not take? What does it look like to, to give and not see? Every one of them is seen in Christ. And our Father is saying, I want to make you like Christ. How am I going to do that? I'm going to do it through the Word, through a body. So all people's church, the Father is calling you individually and you collectively to become like His Son, which is powerful and beautiful and exciting and scary all at once. Because he gets in our space and he deals with our personal issues like what we do with our money and our anger and whether we tell the truth or not. There's three and now the last one. And the other, the, the other verses are, are kind of pushed together here, but I just want to highlight this last one. And of, of all these verses, I, I really like them all. But I would encourage you that I think Ephesians 4.29 has the potential to be most transformative for your lives. So if you don't know Ephesians 4.29, let me encourage you to uh, write it down, give yourself to meditating on it, thinking about it, talking about it in your missional communities. Because Ephesians 4.29 is absolutely gripping when you, uh, when you meditate on it, think about the depth of it, okay? So let's focus here. So we've got we had truth, anger, giving, but now is speech. So T-A-G-S is just acronym for what we're walking through here. And, and the rest of the chapter really is centered around this idea of speech. So think about 429 for a moment. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Okay, That's, that's over here. This is the old language. Cut downs, put downs, rude talk, mean talk, harsh talk, tearing down talk, all of that. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That's what we hear in the world saying, come out of that, leave, leave that aside. That's the negative. But, three parts now to this powerful, spirit-inspired speech that God wants you to grow in. I want you to understand the, the, the kind of speech God wants you to grow in. But, only such as, only what, such what, such, such talk, such speech, only such as is good for building up That's the first piece of this speech. It's good for building up as fits the occasion. That's the second part. Third, that it may give grace to those who hear. You hear that and you say, okay, that's not very impressive. Okay, but you got to think about it. You got to think about it because this is really big. Only that that's good for building up according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. All right, so I'm talking to Ross and, and Proverbs warns me not to be hasty in my speech. Proverbs tells me a, a man 
the, the, the heart of man is like deep water, and a man of understanding draws it out. Okay, so what, what Proverbs says to me is don't be hasty, listen. What James says to me, my brothers, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. So I'm talking with my brother, and, and, and in my flesh, I want to listen for about 10 seconds and then jump in with an answer, right? How you doing? Well, I'm struggling. Oh, you know what you need to do is you need to do that, right? That, that's what immature speech does. But what Christ is calling us to, the, the Christ-like way of speech, it's a different thing. It's good for building up. It fits the occasion. It may give grace to those who hear. What do I really need to do when I'm talking with Ross in order to speak that way? There's a, there's a big implication, a big assumption that this verse is making. I must do something actively before I speak. What is it? okay to speak. I've got to listen. I've got to listen. I've got to actively listen. I've got to ask questions and not talk after I ask questions. I've got to draw out his heart and figure out what's really going on. Sometimes we just want to give the gospel the, the way we always give it in, in 45 seconds, like, okay, done. I've evangelized. No, no. We listen. We hear who people are. We're patient. We're drawing them out. Jesus, the Son of God, John 4, is at the woman at the well. He's not just talking to her. He's asking her questions. He's getting to know her. He's patient with her. He's crossing all kinds of, of, of social lines. He's talking to a woman. He's talking to a Samaritan. He's talking to a, a, a Samaritan woman who's got all kinds of bad reputation. But he's speaking. He's speaking and he's asking questions and he's listening and he's listening and he's listening. And then he caters what he's going to say of himself to her situation, to her heart. It's not a message of shame. It's not piling on the way everybody else does. He's speaking words that are grace-giving, building up according to the need of the moment because he has listened. And all people's church, let me just tell you, this will transform your church. If in missional community if in your relationships, if in conversations, you will pray, God, make us quick to listen. Make us active listeners, asking questions. New people come in and you say, tell me a little bit about yourself. And they give you their like short version that is acceptable in society. Then you ask a follow-up and you listen. Then you ask them about their family and you listen. Very quickly, they're gonna be like, wow, those people are weird. Like, I felt really loved. And this is before you say anything. You were just asking questions and listening. But then when you do speak of Christ, when you do speak a gospel word of encouragement, and then it fits the need of the moment, it gives grace according to the occasion of what they're going through, then they're like, whoa, that was crazy. How do they do that? And it's not magic, right? But we just live in a talk show culture where and then there's this Christian version of that, right? Well, do you believe in this theology or this and we just kind of do this it's like no, no. And we look to Jesus and we see him as the perfection of this grace giving speech. And it's powerful and it's beautiful. And when we blow it, and we confess our sin. Say to my wife, babe, I'm sorry. 
I was rude. I was harsh. I say to my kids, say to people in the church, I'm sorry. I was impatient. I was wrong. <clears throat> and we just go on doing that. Here's the last thing. We're, we're not getting to every detail here. I, I apologize for that. But here's the last piece here. When he says this word about grace-giving speech that is so rare in our world, I was reminded of it yesterday, playing basketball at a, at a, a gym and just hearing all the talk and thinking about this, this text and just everything is tearing down. Everything is ripping. Everything is rude. Verse 30 why is the speech so important? 31 and 32, he's going to unpack that even more, all of our speech kind of attitudes towards one another. But he says, part of the reason this is so important is that we might not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? We're loved children of the Father. And what does a father want for his children together? He wants them to love one another with their words, right? When my kids are bickering, ah, it hurts my heart. I don't want that. And he said, I'm inviting you into this new thing, this new family, this new dynamic where we're loving one another with the words. What is it that grieves the Holy Spirit? When it's anger, when it's lying, when it's tearing down speech, when there's factions, it's not the unity of the Spirit. It, it's all kind of this, right? And so when that's present in our marriage, when that's present with our roommates, when that's present with our extended family, then we just repent. We come to our great Savior who is so, so kind, so forgiving. But look at verse 30 and hear the last part. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And here's the last part. We said that this is all the Spirit-sealed life. So I told you we'd come back to this. Now here we are at the end. When you, believer, trusted in Christ, the Father applied His seal by His Spirit on you. And in American culture, we don't really talk about what, what, what does it mean to be sealed? What, what, what is that? Well, there's, there's three parts of what it means to be sealed. And this is, this is our last thing. And this is, this is where we end. Is to be sealed by the Spirit. To be sealed is, is to be marked as Authentic. So you pull out money, and it has a seal, and the seal marks it as authentic, not counterfeit. There's all kind of measures that mark it as authentic. Your passport has a seal on it, marking it as true, authentic, genuine. So the Holy Spirit in your life, believer, marks you as authentic, and your life of being transformed by the Spirit marks you as authentic. And if your life is not being transformed by the Spirit, if people smell your life, and they're not smelling love, joy, peace, patience, kindness growing, then they begin to wonder, whoa, is this authentic? If it's anger and clamor and bitterness and all the works of the flesh still there, then there's the question, is this authentic? Because when the Spirit seals us, He seals us as something that is authentic, and the Spirit indwells us and changes us and convicts us of sin and empowers us to fight sin. But not only... Does the sealing of the Spirit mark us as authentic? The Spirit also marks us as belonging to someone, someone's property. So a couple of my fellow pastors have gotten the strange idea that if I take one of their books, I should give it back. It's very strange, I know, right? But they've gone to such desperate measures that they've gotten these seals, 
and, and you, you stamp into the book, Property of Lewis Guest, right? And so you know, if it's a book that's theirs, you know it. So when you're like, oh, okay, yeah, this is your book, give it back, right? It's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to do. But they, they stamp the book, it impresses the paper, and sealed as one's property. Believer, if you are in Christ, you have been marked by the Spirit, this one belongs to God. This one belongs to God. This one is mine. The whole Bible is about God choosing a people. And if you're in Christ, you've been sealed by the Spirit as this one is mine. Romans 8 says it this way, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The inward witness of the Spirit is saying, that's your daddy, and you're mine, and you're his, a a people for his own possession. Christ has purchased for himself a people, a bride that he will receive forever. The Spirit seals us as genuine. The Spirit seals us as belonging to God. The Spirit also seals us lastly. Romans 8 says it like this, as the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That is a down payment. Okay, so think about this. You, you uh, put your car up for sale out in front of your house. Used car, call my number, da-da-da. Somebody knocks on your door and says, hey, I'd like to buy your car. All right, cool. No big deal. I'll call you later. Uh, no problem. Different person knocks on your door and says, hey, I'd like to buy your car. Here's $1,000. Can you please not sell it to anybody until tomorrow? I'll come back with the rest of the money. Which one are you going to take more seriously? Obviously, the one who gave you the cash, right? Who gave you the down payment, who gave you the guarantee. He's coming back. The first person you don't know. And sometimes we wonder in this world, when we're fighting the battle, living for Jesus, Jesus is really worth Am I really yours? Am I really yours? Am I really yours? And then he says, I gave you a guarantee. I gave you a down payment. You're going to receive an inheritance. As sons and daughters, you're going to receive the fullness of the inheritance. And we say, wait, what's the guarantee? What's the down payment? Down payment is the spirit. Do you, when you see God, do you see him as a father? If you do, that's the work of the spirit in your life. Do you see sin in your life and fight against it? That's the work of the Spirit in your life. That's what the Spirit does. The, the, the work of the Spirit is not, are you sinlessly perfect? Okay, that's not it. It's, are you fighting against it? And, and we say, God, am I really yours? Will I really be yours forever? And he says, yes, you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, he goes on, he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Life's hard, things are difficult, all of creation's groaning, it's painful, the world's hard, but not only creation, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we are groaning inwardly until what? As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. We've been adopted, that's true, but we haven't received the fullness of adoption. Got a family from our church that just got on a plane to go adopt their son. Can I tell you how excited they are and their son is for the completion of this adoption? Can I tell you how that dude's face lit up when his son came home? 
Can I tell you, meeting my children, throw it option, each time, supernatural, amazing. And we are waiting eagerly for the moment when our adoption will be complete and we are joined to our Father. And Romans 8 says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And all creation waits, Romans 8, 19, with eager longing for the revealing of the Son's of God. When we adopted our first son, I was very concerned that no one would have any uh, misunderstanding that in any way adoption was somehow inferior to, to a son who would come biologically. At that time, adoption was a little more whatever. That, that could be a thing. Uh, an old friend of mine came up to me once when he looked at our kids. He said, it's, it's, it, it's interesting. You treat your children who are adopted and your children biologically the same. I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, doesn't everybody do that? He's like, no, I, no everybody doesn't do that. It's like, well, that's just weird to me that that's not a thing. But I wanted to make really sure that my son knew that he was my son. So my name's John Erickson. My middle names, plural, are my two grandfather's names. Alvin Durward, both kind of weird names, but they were my grandfather's names. My oldest son, is named John Erickson, and he has both of his grandfather's names, Alvin Rodney, because I wanted him to know, but you are sealed. You are mine. I am yours. You are my son. No doubt about it. No question at all. And believer, if you are in Christ, the Father has set his spirit on you as a seal and said, you are mine, and your adoption will be complete soon and very soon. But right now, the good news is he hasn't left us as we are. And the bad news is for our crusty old sinful leave me alone selfishness, he won't leave us as we are. But together with the body, he's transforming us to make us people of truth, people putting away anger, a people putting away theft and growing and giving, and a people whose speech is changing from that which tears down to that which builds up so that we may become like Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this body. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one building it. And thank you that you don't leave us as we are. You are in the business of changing us and transforming us. And that's good news for everybody around us. And yet at times it's painful. We live in this old broken down world where things are hard. But I pray for all people's church that together there would just be a growing up in grace. And that there'd be so much speech here that builds up and lifts up and would cause families to grow and cause singles to grow and cause this body to grow, that it would become more and more day by day like Christ. We pray this all in his mighty name.